what we're doing with the AI is we're think of it as kind of an extension to what you what we were delivering with the well screening, but now we're looking at other external databases. So we've basically doubled or tripled the number of characteristics about a person that we've identified. But then we've increased exponentially the data that we're looking at coming out of the CRMs that measure the engagement. Welcome to the Responsive Nonprofit Podcast, brought to you by Virtuous. Responsive nonprofits are the organizations leading with innovation to grow giving and impact. Join us each week in spirited conversation with the leading voices across philanthropy, fundraising, and nonprofit technology. Subscribe on your favorite stations or visit us at virtuous.org backslash podcast. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. I think this is going to be a really fun one today. I'm personally strapping in because I think I'm going to learn a lot here. This is totally outside of my experience, but things that I vaguely know about, and I know the the capabilities and possibilities of it, but I don't know how it actually works. And so I'm really intrigued by the conversation that we're going to have here with Bill and Sarah Tedesco. And they are the leaders of, well, then there's a brother as well, but leaders of donor search. And Bill, I know you have been doing this in, in the industry for over 25 years and looking at artificial intelligence and machine learning and building fundraising solutions for the nonprofit market to help organizations get more dollars to do more good. And Sarah, it sounds like you've been there since the very beginning as well in a number of different roles. And so just want to start out and say, welcome to the show, guys. Thanks. Thank you so much. Yeah. And so let's get the context. Let's lay it down so that our listeners know who we're, who we're hearing from and what about. And then I would really want to dig into some of the subject matter uh, that you guys are experts on. But I'm going to let the daughter go first. Can I kick it to you? And by the way, this is our first father-daughter combo on the podcast. So this you guys are setting precedent here. This is going to be fun. So, <laughs> so Sarah, awesome. can you give us some background? Yes. Well, you know, we do love to innovate here. So we appreciate being the first. And actually, this is our first father-daughter as well. Yes, it is. Okay. Excited to be here. Yes. So my title right now is Executive Vice President, and I am a co-owner of DonorSearch. I started working for Bill, for my dad, about 16 years ago, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. And uh, my job has always been to, one, be really close to the donor search products and solutions and know how to talk about it with our clients or nonprofit partners. But my role has now shifted more to the operations, overseeing our marketing, our production, our client success team, and helping facilitate growth. Amazing. And you're still there with your dad after 16 years. You know, he's a pretty good boss, I'll say. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And Bill, give me some of the background, because I know you've held a number of different roles. I was learning a little bit beforehand that, you know, even Executive Vice President of Target America and CEO of Wealth Engine, and now taking all of, I I assume, a lot of those skills and been putting those with DonorSearch for the past 16 years. Give us the why and, and a little bit of the journey. The journey is, this is a second career for me. First career was computer sales and marketing to government way back when up in Pennsylvania. The transition is, is that I moved into the nonprofit market when the the industry, the direct sales of, of large computer equipment 
really basically shrunk. So I've been through, this is relevant to the nonprofit industry. I've been through the sort of displacement that happens when an industry shrinks. So long and short is I worked a couple of years as a fundraiser. And then I was introduced to this whole wealth screening concept, which I can say was fairly new at the time that I was introduced to it. And it was a real nice confluence of the nonprofit experience, the sort of salesy, nobody in, that's a fundraiser wants to call think of it as a sales process, but there are a lot of similarities. And you frankly take the computer background and put it together. And it worked out very nicely because the screening portion of it relies very heavily on the data side. There's even a landscape architecture dimension to the whole thing, but that's probably too much information. Donor search represented an opportunity to kind of take care of some unfinished business. When I left Wealth Engine, I thought things had gone well, both at Target American and they also went well at Wealth Engine. But upon my exit, I just kind of gotten to the point where I discovered that, in hindsight, it seems very obvious, but that you could actually screen against philanthropic data and begin to build a profile of a person's charitable interests. Oddly enough, it was something that really hadn't been tried prior to that. Mm-hmm. And then we we did that for probably the first decade, first 12, well, almost 14, 13 years. And then the opportunity to move into AI, it was kind of a, another one of these things where a bunch of things came together, uh, the very least of which are the uh, the folks that operate that portion of it, Nathan mm-hmm. and Scott. So anyway, that's the background. That's how we got where we are. Oh, I appreciate it. And that's, yeah, I want to double click on a little bit of these, a couple of these things, because Sarah was telling me earlier, 170 million gift records in your database. And you know, it's growing by more than 25,000 records per day. And when I heard those numbers, my jaw kind of dropped because I'm like, that is a lot of data, right? Like that is, that is a ton. You're dealing with mega data and then creating systems to deal with that to then what better inform people who are raising money, right? At nonprofits. Right. How, Sarah, can you unpack that a little bit for me at Donor Search? Because it's I'm just fascinated by the number of data points that can be there and then brought those and personalized for individual queries for specific people. And I, I'm not sure that everybody in our, in our listening audience even understands how all that works. Yeah, I am happy to. And it's funny too, when we first started building this charitable giving database, there was nothing like it in the industry. And literally it was you know kind of put together by boxes of annual reports. So, you know, we started the company in the house and now we're all working remotely again. So it's funny how history repeats itself, right? But literally you would have these annual reports. We would cut them, we would scan them, we'd turn them into OCR documents and go from there. And we were bringing this taste of understanding philanthropy to the nonprofit market when in the past they were just previously reliant on how big is somebody's house, you know, what is the real estate associated with it. You know, maybe they have a company, but it didn't really tell us whether or not they were philanthropic. Mm. So our first solutions that we were bringing were really based on this gift search and bringing philanthropy to the screening. And that was really empowering for so many organizations because now they could see, okay, how much are people giving away? What types of causes? And of course, now we don't really do boxes of annual reports, right? Everything is online and we have a whole team that's continuing to build this. And the data has continued to get better. I mean, we've added other elements like social media or we've added things 
that were important to the users that are using the donor search solutions. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. And I know, you know, working at Virtuous now, I know we even pull in all the, you know, we talk about our wealth data scoring, I guess, feature that is built into the CRM. But I mean, that's you guys, right? Like that's you guys powering all of that. (laughs) That's you, Bill. No, it isn't, Rob. No. (laughs) (laughs) You said you could cut these. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, that is us. That's us inside of your application. It's a... um, it's an API uh, fairly early in the process. We built a fairly robust capability for one machine to talk to the other. That ABI, API can carry a lot of information across. And yeah, that's folks want to know. And, you know, it just makes all the sense in the world that, you know, you should be able to press a button and, and kind of pull up, a, at least now it does, pull up this profile. Actually, the, the folks at Virtuous actually have a, an advantage if I put in my virtuous plug here, is is that you guys have a feature called Actions, which allows that sort of lookup capability to happen automatically as you add a new name or as you change a record. And then that information can be basically mapped over to your marketing strategies. Hmm. So if you imagine not having that information, clients are getting all these inputs. You know, somebody registers for an event, somebody... Calls in and ask a question. Somebody makes a small gift. All that information has to wait for somebody to research it. And it's not all that long ago that that stuff used to take maybe a year or two before it got fully researched. It, wow. They would never catch up. Wow. Your clients are actually in the position where that can happen within a matter of seconds after the event. And then you can start to push towards your development officers. Here are prospects. Here's, you know, mm-hmm. consider adjusting your portfolio. Hmm. It's all about being more efficient and virtuous allows for that and there's in their environment. So it's all about like productive workflows, efficiency, prioritizing who you should be talking to, when you should be talking to them and making sure that, you know, you have this sort of right capacity in mind and that the data doesn't get siloed, right? Like it's not hmm. just in one person's, uh, one person is privy to it. So that's one of the benefits too, is just making it part of the processes and the systems that are in place. No, it's great. I love the idea of innovation unleashing more impact. You know what I mean? Like the idea of, hey, this could take years to go collate all this data and then let's analyze it and then hand it off to somebody. And then go, but you're like, no, in the click of a button, we we can get all of that and and utilize this technology and leverage that to go unleash more dollars and more impact for the organizations that we serve and that's that's real progress that's that's like entrepreneurship pushing and innovating forward to make the world a better place which i love it when we can be a part of things like that i want to shift gears for a second and i know that nathan chappelle and your team just put out a book called the generosity crisis and that's something that's really uh, what I'm seeing on the outside as core to your business and the narrative of of what the problem and solution of what you guys are doing. And it's it's everywhere. The things that <laughs> I've linked in, Facebook, it's all over. You guys are either targeting me or this is everywhere. But I'd love to just hear more about just the findings from that and, and how that plays into the work of Donor Search and what we're talking about here. I can start it, Sarah. Sure. I can certainly jump in. But so Nathan, it's a kind of a multi-year project that Nathan's been working on that's really just culminated this past fall where the book got published in hardback and now it's available on audio. He pays me to say that, just so you know. 
with that said, we're definitely cutting that part out. <laughs> Please do. I'm <laughs> oh, just playing. All right. Um, Sorry. Yes, he pays you. Yes. Now what? So probably the most defining thing, the observation, he he went to multiple sources. The most defining thing is, is that it's a general opinion of folks in the nonprofit market that they're in a growing market, that as long as giving's going up every year, then everything's peachy keen and easy. Meanwhile, the work in the trenches seems to be getting a little bit harder. It seems a little bit harder to connect with folks. It seems a little bit harder to to raise the goals. Nobody's ever said that their goals are too low. The long and short of it is, is that if you look at the numbers that everybody is, is comfortable with and you pull out a handful of 25 or 50 ultra high net worth individuals, okay. and, and that's a reasonable assumption because believe it or not, ultra high net worth individuals adjust their charitable giving when the economy economy suffers too. Mm-hmm. You know, you're down a couple billion and start to get concerned, right? That's a joke, but that's all. <laughs> so the long and short is it is a it's actually when you look at it, take the dollar value away, the number of gifts that are actually being made on an annual basis is in a steady decline. Hmm. And it's a decline that's kind of gone on notice for the past 10 years. Hmm. I'm old enough that I can remember when everybody said, oh, yeah, about 70, 75 percent of all American households make gifts. Well, the reality is, is that 2022 was the first year that that percentage fell below 50 percent. Okay. So you're literally in an environment now where you've dropped at least a full third of all your value. Um, in a 10-year time frame. That's when you begin to look at it that way, you begin to understand the generosity crisis. Mm-hmm. That's that's the, the the tone behind it, or that's the, I guess it wraps around that. Yeah. Sarah? Yeah, I would say, you know, layered on top of that, right, you see this decline in giving is that you have a new generation coming into some wealth. You see their priorities and their interests are changing, for the first time, like actually it's been going on for a couple of years now as well, is religion used to be the predominant industry that was receiving most of charitable gifts. That's declined. Um, but what we see on the rise is more of the arts organizations, environmental organizations, humanities, like those priorities have shifted. And there's an expectation of how an organization communicates with, you know, their donors or a corporation communicates with its subscribers or buyers or consumers because the standards have all increased over the years, right? Like there's a level of personalization, understanding that we expect, you know, this company or, you know, nonprofit that we're investing our dollars in to understand us. And I think nonprofits have gone over gotten, you know, kind of away with it for a long time of not having to be held to that high standard, mm. but it's catching up. And we can see that with, you know, the dollars that are declining, you know, it's the case that is made also in Nathan's book and then also in Gabe's book about this idea of connection and understanding how to communicate with people and listening and then giving them what they need. So that human element is really needs to be refined and ideally with technology advances, I would Hmm. say. Yeah. The responsive, in our language, the responsive element and the responsive podcast here that we're doing if yeah, getting back to the listening and then responding appropriately and helping with the next best step for that organization and whatever that, whatever the task is. Right. So if that's the case of the steady decline, 
And we're uncovering this new data, taking out the mega donors, looking at the trend lines. So what's the net effect then to our nonprofits? Like, so you got nonprofit leaders listening to this. Does that mean even more competition over the dollars that are out there that are on decline? Like, how, how does this play out in in the real world here? Yeah, it's literally the difference between being in a market that's growing and being in a market that's actually shrinking. In a market that's actually shrinking, the players in the market, and I'm not sure nonprofits necessarily want to be thought of this way, Mm -hmm. they have to become better competitors because there are fewer gifts or there are fewer dollars in the market than that there were before. And you have to be better at your job. A, A big part of the generosity crisis suggests the shift from the mentality for the past, I don't know, 20 years, or certainly as long as I've been in the business, is more donors or better donors. More donors is better okay. at, any cost. Yeah. at any cost. It doesn't matter how many times you have to mail to them. If you finally get them on the file, then it's a win. Well, the truth of the matter is that's, let me pick the right adjective, that's nonsense. Hmm. That's absolute nonsense. If you have a client that is costing you a lot of money because of their needs or because they're reluctant or they're not really, you know, they're not going to renew, they're not going to increase how much that they spend with you. And to think that you should be willing to acquire those those clients at any cost, which is the mentality right mm-hmm. now, is absurd because you have to look at the lifetime value of a, in this case, it would be a donor or a partner or prospect and measure that against what your expenses are. The book talks about something called radical connection, which basically says it's not about having the, the incremental five, you know, two, three percent of additional donors. It's more about taking care of the folks who you already have connections with, which in, in some regards is the segue to the AI. Mm-hmm. What we're doing with the AI is we're think of it as kind of an extension to what you what we were delivering with the well screening but now we're looking at other external databases so we've basically doubled or tripled the number of characteristics about a person that we're we've identified but then we've increased exponentially the data that we're looking at coming out of the CRMs that measure the engagement you know, whether or not what has been their pat- transactional giving. Are they speeding up right now? Are they slowing down right now? Have they been gone for a while? Are they? And then you look at other measures. You look at the how people are interacting with the communications. You look at whether or not people are attending your events. You look at anything, and let's say in a hospital environment, one of the things that's fair game, not, not diagnosis or treatment or anything like that, but you it is fair game to know who a patient visited, how often, and how many different doctors that they actually visited. Hmm. Well, as it turns out, that's ideal engagement data for measuring the connection of the individual to the organization because, no big surprise, not all doctors are the same. Some have better bedside manners, and um, frankly, their their patients are often more receptive to um, gratitude. So, that's the big change. Instead of trying to get everybody to be your donor, let's get the folks that are going to stay connected to you over an extended period of time and you know, kind of follow the trajectory that you're looking for. At the very least, repeat gifts, 
at the very most larger gifts or potential even you know planned or lifetime giving that's a big change in the way um we're suggesting that people think about it and the the truth of the matter is from the ai clients that have had this installed long enough to you know produce results with it is it it's night and day difference it'd be like you talking to some uh, like from a a crm perspective talking to a nonprofit and having no idea what their configuration is or what their actual needs are as opposed to talking to somebody who can articulate those needs very clearly and you see the logical connections between um, the two this episode is brought to you by virtuous donation should be a celebratory moment not just another transaction with virtuous giving you can create personalized and frictionless online giving experiences with tools like branded donation pages smart gift arrays wealth and social scoring, and integrated payment processing so each donation is meaningful and full of gratitude. Want to learn more? Get a personalized demo today at virtuous.org slash demo. That's virtuous.org slash demo. I was just going to add a little bit to that is that, you know, not only are is there a competition for nonprofits, you know, with other peer-to-peer nonprofits, you also have this competition, and it's talked about also in the book, um, and Neetha's with the generosity crisis, is that corporations are now really stepping into this space of philanthropy. Patagonia is the example that's used a lot, that they say that they'll give you know $100 million a year to fight climate change. Patagonia is no stranger, I'm sure, to using AI for their advertising and for their prompts. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, they're making proactive recommendations to their consumer of what they should buy, where they should spend their money. Now they have this trust built in about, you know, fighting climate change. That's something that, again, you know, donors might be looking at as like, that might be a better way to spend my money versus investing in an organization that can't even get my name right on the piece of mail that they send me. So it's just interesting. Yeah. That, very interesting. And I love how you transitioned for us here in the conversation, Bill, going from the crisis to, you know, okay, so how are, how do we combat that with these data points, with AI, with looking at behavior and engagements? Because you're right. It's funny. Many of the nonprofits that I still work with, it is it is a volume game, right? It's like more donors equals more dollars. Let's go, you know? But to your point, Sarah, about looking and how business is being done outside of, you know, in the quote unquote business for profit world, taking many of the practices that have been used for quite a while now and bringing those into the nonprofit space and then democratizing it so that all nonprofits can have access to this technology. That's, that's a real gift to our industry. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, I want to mention this too, is that there was a paper that was published uh, 2019. It was on the state of the AI in the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is pre-pandemic, right? 75% of people believed that AI would make their life easier. We're seeing this now, even with chat GPT, right? Like it's this whole big conversation, but more than half of people are afraid of AI And have this big, there's this big conversation about the ethics that are used associated with it. So it's interesting. It's like, you know, moving this needle forward. How do you do that? Well, the first step is trying to understand, you know, what are some of those gaps in the conversation? You know, where are people when it comes to their perspective? 
and then bringing it back to some of those nonprofit challenges that are exasperated just because of the environment that we're in, just because of the economy, but still having those same big goals that were in place. Hmm. So, okay, so I'm a nonprofit exec or donor development leader at my organization. I'm hearing this. I'm how am I on a real practical level? Am I accessing the AI, you know, donor search AI and whatnot through my CRM or am I going directly to you? Like, what does this look like on my like daily? You know, I go to work and it's a Monday morning at 9 a.m. and I've, you know, I'm trying to, I've got a goal to go hit $2 million this quarter of new donations and get people to renew. What's it look like on for me as a, as a leader there? At the very least, you know, think of a development officer having a portfolio, right? Mm-hmm. And I actually saw an example of this and I was, it was a client who's just adopting. They did. They hadn't figured out that they could use the AI for this purpose. So you've got a list. Let's say you have two or three hundred major gift prospects, okay. and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do for. Let's say it's a real planner. They're planning the whole week. The inclination, and certainly the way um, um, many folks heard it before, and and I'd have to admit that I was a party to it, is you would look at the people that perhaps had the most wealth. Or you would look at the people who had made gifts elsewhere, whether it be similar causes or other types of causes. That'll only get you so far. The truth of the matter is those variables are helpful in acquisitions. But when you're looking to raise money from existing donors, they shrink in terms of their relevancy. What becomes much more important is how close are you as a prospect on this list in terms of demonstrated behavior, where you attended the event, where you opened an email, where you gave a gift in the last 12 months, or you gave in the last three months, or maybe you're a sustainer on there, or maybe you've upgraded recently. All those things analyzed very quickly basically give you a simple scale of zero to 100, and the folks at 100 are the most engaged. You actually end up using the wealth and the philanthropy only to segment which portfolio they should go into. So the engagement is the dominant aspect of the analysis. So you rate everybody in the file, whether they be patients, whether they be alum, whether they be... But you do do one thing separately, though. You take your non-donors and you evaluate them separately from your donors. Okay. Because there's a different set of variables that are predictive. And then you break the segments out and say, like, well, these are all, this is what we consider to be a major gift potential. Take the people who have the high engagement. And how about those are the folks that you call this week? How about those are the folks you try to get to lunch? Because it's, they're much more likely to respond to an interaction because they're already engaged and you've qualified them from the wealth or philanthropic perspective in addition to that. And then, you know, the folks that have lower capacity and perhaps lower philanthropy elsewhere, they move into a different portfolio. It's that simple. Uh, long answer, just zero to 100. <laughs> no, no, it's it's not that simple. You've made it that simple. And, that's, and we can say that now, but that's... No, simple concept, hard to, uh, hard to pull off, right? A lot of years of building to be able to do that. Oh, yeah. We couldn't do this without the technology stack that we had. Naively, when we first got into this, I thought we would do it with a data scientist. And the couple of firms in the industry that tried to do it before we were doing it 
try to do it using kind of a classic approach to AI where you collect the data from the client and you tell them what you want to predict and then you hand it off to a data scientist. They disappear into a dark room for two or three months. They come out, they have a model and the model might as well be carved in stone because it's very difficult to edit and change. Okay. And if it's off the mark, then you have to put them back in the dark room again. They go another three months and in comparison, the technology platform that we have now is if we don't like the way the model is behaving or what if we look at what it's predicting and it's just wrong, you can tweak it. And then less than a day later, you've got a new model. It's explored this whole set of other algorithms that it could use. I think so. another, yeah, it's like it's making improvements and adjustments on the new information that's available so it's not just like a one time or once a year calculation. It's delivering, you know, improved and adjusted scoring every month based on your new engagement. And it's not a generic model. It's custom for your organization. But, mm. you know, some of the smaller organizations that we work with that aren't, you know, ready to just jump right in, um, they can use scores like an MLR, which means most likely to respond, which is really a replacement for the RFM, which is a static, it's an aggregate, like an average, right? Anybody can do an RFM, but the MLR score is going beyond just, you know, how recently someone gave, how frequently, or the total amount of money. It's looking at, you know, the giving transactions, the email communication, the volunteer involvement, all of that, you know, pulled together and then can be updated based on, you know, the new involvement or additional information that an organization might pull in. So you're constantly informed as to who's most likely to respond to them, potentially give a gift to your organization. Wow. That's, Yeah. Yeah, very responsive and and learning and adjusting on the fly, right? Instead of, <laughs> I like to th throw the guys in the dark room for three months and <laughs> see what they come back with. That yeah, that doesn't sound like a real scalable model for us here, you know. It's very nice too. stone. Though. Yeah, <laughs> and they want to charge royalties. <laughs> pretty stone, pretty stone. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sarah, you hit on it briefly at the end that. This is not just for the big boys, right? This is any size organization that can be utilized in this technology. Yeah. yeah, I would say the big boys, if you will. The large organizations, they were more excited to jump in and kind of roll up their sleeves because they had a ton of data and there were all these big silos and big trying to get everybody into alignment. And now what we're seeing is, you know, because we've had such great adoption and so many people are seeing these improvements some of the mid-size and smaller organizations are more willing and ready. And again, it's just a matter of like, what's your risk tolerance? You know, what is your leadership like? You can just dip your toe in and get, you know, this relationship score that's updated dynamically, or you can get these amazing analysis of your donors and your non-donors and be able to segment and create these great workflows within your organization. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for clarifying that. All right. I want to honor our time, but I want to ask this last question. And this is where we get a little personal. And um, I love the answers I'm hearing from all of our guests. This is really fascinating. But the question is, is what does generosity mean to you? And I'd love to, for you to take that however you want, but would love to just know a little bit behind the, the why of all this. I'll jump in. Um, I've had a little more time to think about it. Um, maybe <laughs> Twice as long as there. Uh, In a lifetime, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have mentioned scale. It's really your inclination to take care of your fellow human being, to help, 
And if you're not so inclined, you're not generous. If you are inclined and you act on it, it's it's kind of the definition of being generous. So hmm. let me know what you need, Rob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll do that offline. <laughs> okay. So when I think of generosity, I think it's about, you know, I was looking at definitions because that's how I am. I like to research and then come up with my own idea after that. But it's really about this like feeling of being happy when you're helping someone. So I I like that idea of like you're feeling good. You're not doing it out of contempt. You're not doing it out of like to prove something. You're doing it because, you know, not only does it make you feel good, but it is also making this impact with another organization or not with an organization. It doesn't have to be ours. It could be with a person. And I think that, you know, really gets to the heart of what we're trying to do here and you know, um, this connection with people as you're trying to capture that feeling of happiness while making a difference, while being able to give back. So that's what I think. Yeah. Is that what you thought I was going to say, Bill, since you've known I, me for so long? <laughs> I bet you Sarah says. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, thanks for that. I appreciate that. Just, uh, I like going a little deeper into the heart on these things. Yeah. All right. So how do we get a hold of you? What what are the next steps? So I'm a nonprofit. I'm interested. Maybe I'm dabbling, but I, I haven't gone full in. What what should I be doing? So the best way to get more information is first to reach out to your virtuous rep if you have one. And then the second is you're, we're more than happy to connect with you. So you can reach out on LinkedIn. You can reach out an email. We have very easy emails. It's sarah at donorsearch.net and bill at donorsearch.net. And we're at conferences all the time, different sorts of webinars and presentations and podcasts available. So, Or go to our website, donorsearch.net. Uh, There's request information or request a demonstration. Perfect. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate this. I am inspired by your work. And I, I'm just grateful for just the years that you've put into this to give the capabilities to, uh, you know, the average average nonprofit is wanting to make a dent in the world and do something good for someone. And now they can leverage your technology and, and do that at scale and make even greater impact. So that's, that's a real gift that you both have given to our listeners and nonprofit leaders around the country. So I appreciate that so much. And that's a wrap folks. Thanks for tuning in this week to the responsive nonprofit podcast. We are so grateful for your time. We know how busy you are and consider it a privilege to journey alongside you as you work to make change in our world. We believe in you and would love to hear from you. Projects like this are only as good as the feedback we get, the guests who come on, and all the topics we get to discuss. So if you have an idea, if you know of an impactful guest that must come on the show, or if you want to be a part of the responsive community, check us out over at virtuous.org backslash podcast and join the conversation. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite station. Your mission needs your collective talent and passion. So go forth and lead the charge forward and we'll be here cheering you on. We'll see you next week.